fact that an American guy was down there trusting people enough that he wouldn't be completely wiped out. He could be trying to just show how terrifying in his mind he is because he killed these guys himself. And that war raged between Los Negros and the Zetas for several years, resulting in thousands of deaths. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today, although in isolation across the country, is... Hi, everybody. Hi, Jim. It's Francie Hagues, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, we're now using very exciting technology. We can see each other as well as hear each other. One of these days, we'll bring the listeners in so they can see us too. Or maybe not. I don't know. It means makeup and hair and lighting. Uh, never mind. Maybe just voice. Uh, if I have to bring <laughs> hair to this, if I have to bring hair to this, I don't know if it's possible. But with us today, continuing an amazing story is... Skip Sewell, former Drug Enforcement Administration Special Agent. And very cool guy. Uh, Skip, we're so excited. We're so excited to have you back to tell us more about the exciting tale of La Barbie. And I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, thank you. Let's jump right back into it. So, Skip, at this point in your investigation, when you guys arrest Chris, well, finally arrest Chris, I guess, but arrest Pena and all these others, would you say that the main target for you or maybe even DEA was LaBarbie? Or did the target now that you're coordinating all of this with everyone all around the country is bigger than that or more more broad than that? Well, we, we did know that LaBarbie was connected with Arturo Beltran Labor or the Beltran Labor cartel from Sinaloa. So we were hoping that maybe we could somehow figure out a way to get up on the Barbie's phone. Although that was a long shot. Once the traffickers know that the people on the other side are arrested, first thing they're going to do is ditch that phone. And usually they're going to have six, eight, 10 more phones. They're all disposable to them. It wasn't as easy back in in those years as it is now, but it's still for them. I mean, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar organization. They're going to have throwaway phones. They're going to have multiple phones. So the we never did, did get up. We attempted to, but never did get up on a wire intercept on LaBarbie. And shortly after that, his whereabouts, uh, there was rumors that he was involved in multiple shootouts and shootings in Nuevo Laredo. And because of the pressure, he moved out of Nuevo Laredo into Sinaloa and Acapulco area and throughout Mexico. He was 
somewhat not in hiding because they operated in you know broad daylight. The cartels ran Mexico at that time. But he also, the, the chief of police in Luevo Laredo was killed. There was some rumors that he had some involvement in it. And so he went, he left the Nuevo Laredo and again, went to Sinaloa or Acapulco area. I, I just, I'm just so stunned by what your small case has turned into. So you guys are trying to get up on LaBarbie's phone and you can't. So what's sort of the next step in the investigation? I mean, you've made arrests. This is a lot of cocaine that you've seized. You could be done, but you weren't. So what was the plan and what did you guys do next? The next thing we did is just, uh, we had Cesar Pena cooperating, telling us, yes, that's definitely LaBarbie that we went to see. But we also, I went to, uh, over to our Houston office and did a voice comparison from a known sample of the Barbie's voice with the recorded phone calls we had just to strengthen up the case for the U.S. attorney and to make it a little um, stronger for prosecution. Mm. After that, I started receiving calls from Mississippi office, Gulfport Biloxi office. They had a guy over there by the name of Dave Warner, who was supplying most of the state of Mississippi, certainly the the Gulf Coast and all that area, the guy that they had been after for a while. And I also received a call from the Memphis office, and they had a guy there by the name of Greg Pettis. Greg ultimately got nine life sentences in this. He was wow. a very dangerous guy, and they were dealing drugs in, throughout Memphis. And he had, he had connections to Atlanta also, and Pettis was also given Dave Warner out of Mississippi drugs also, cocaine, marijuana, you name it. Well, those two got tipped off that the DEA was getting ready to arrest them. So they fled to Mexico where La Barbie had a place for them to stay, a safe house for them to stay. And they ended up living with, with him for years down there. Mm. This is the time that La Barbie is working his way up in the cartel. And this is probably early... 2000, 2003. And this is when, getting off subject a little bit here, but OCL Cardenas is arrested, the head of the Gulf Cartel, by the FBI and the DEA. And that gives the Sinaloa or, Car- or Beltran Leyva Cartel, they want to start taking over some of that area in a fierce war where thousands of lives are, are taken, breaks out between the Los Zetas, the Zetas, which is the enforcement arm of the Gulf Cartel, and what they call the Los Negros, which was the enforcement arm of Beltran Leyva's cartel, which was headed up by, at that time, LaBarbie. So I just want to make sure I understand this, Skip. When when you say that LaBarbie was in charge of Los Negros, is that what you said? Yes, Los Negros. Their enforcement arm. What is the enforcement arm? What does that mean he was in charge of? That means that he, he was the one that, that was do all the logistics. He would send men to Nuevo Laredo. They were the one battling with the Zetas. They were trying to, they were killing each other in an attempt to take over the the, the drug corridors, the, the distribution routes that entered into the United States. That's what they were fighting over that territory after, again, um, OCL Cardenas got arrested. So LaBarbie is directing murders. I mean, he's ordering people to kill people. He's sending in people into the Gulf Cartel territory and he's having them kill Zetas, members of the Gulf Cartel, they're both trying to eliminate one another. The Zetas were a highly functional military group. It was ex-army, ex-military people that started the Zetas, and they were probably a little more advanced than the Los 
Negroes, although both of them had all kind of automatic weapons. They had hand grenades. They had all the stuff that, you know, bulletproof cars. They both were fully outfitted with the money that drugs can buy. Uh, the Zetas, again, were probably a, a little better prepared because they were a military, ex-military members who started this group called the Zetas, which is simply the Z's in Spanish, and became the hired men, hired hitmen, hired gunmen for cartels, specifically in this case, the um, Gulf Cartel. Wow. And that war raged between uh, Los Negros and the Zetas for, for, for several years, again, resulting in, in thousands uh, of deaths. And that's, uh, that's what I was just going to bring up. I mean, this is dangerous territory. I mean, very, very violent. And I mean, that's just the nature of the work. Just the fact that an American guy was down there trusting people enough that he wouldn't be, you know, completely wiped out and, and him then getting involved in the same kind of stuff. I, I mean, just wiping out people left and right. I mean, it's just, it's horrific criminal behavior. And I can't imagine the amount of, you know, just sorrow he actually caused uh, the people of Mexico and the people of the United States because of what he decided to do for a living. Well, and Jim, it's interesting. I'd like to ask you a question about this. I mean, I don't think people generally think about this kind of person in a drug organization as, as sort of a serial killing psychopath type. I mean, I understand that, that he doesn't necessarily fit the textbook definition or the definition we all think of when we think of serial killer because he's not killing strangers. I mean, there's that sort of you know, wide open motive that is a different motive for murder. But I mean, don't you have to be a psychopath to just sort of order people into their death for a drug war? I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, there is a psychopathy checklist and you'd have to go through point by point. It actually measures behavior starting in adolescence and getting in trouble when you're a kid and, and you know, looking for excitement and, and glib nature and all this and pathological lying, all those kinds of traits. So I'd have to actually study his life to tell you if he actually checks all the boxes on the psychopathy checklist. But the fact is that he clearly came from a family that didn't encourage this kind of behavior and he went off the rails. I don't know if that was motivated completely by money and and that's what got him into this or whether he was in fact born without human empathy and was destined to do things that were terrible. So uh, it just depends. I, I, I just can't tell from the 30,000 foot view, but he does sound pretty damn psychopathic to me. And there's no doubt that he was. At, at one point, the Zetas sent four hitmen into Acapulco, where La Barbie was living, strictly to kill him. La Barbie got a heads up that they were there. He sent four of his guys out to grab these guys. They got to jump on them and brought those guys, the Zetas, to him. There's a videotape of La Barbie as he goes down and interrogates these four Zetas. And he asks them what they're doing there. He's got a gun. They're all tied up. They've been badly beaten. He asks them what they're doing there, what their purpose is. They tell him why they're there. In fact, one of them had brought his wife and family to kill, on a trip to kill La Barbie. Valdez had the wife and kid at a separate location. And the one thing I can say about La Barbie is he didn't kill women and children usually. As much of a psychopath as he was, and a lot of cartels and cartel leaders and cartel hitmen, they will kill women and children. They, they know no boundaries. La Barbie would not. Usually. Usually, correct. And after, after several 
hours of interrogating this these guys by LaBarbie, you see a hand come into the picture frame. And LaBarbie, who we believe did it, not 100%, walks down and shoots all four of these guys in the head. And then he takes the video and he mails it into the United States where it gets into the hands of the Dallas Morning News where they show parts of it. So that obviously failed. And the attempt on his life there and the drug wars for the the, the, the cartels fight each other anyways. Sometimes it doesn't even have to be for control. They fight each other for reputation, respect. It's it's a warped world. And uh, these wars have been going on since, you know, the godfather of Mexican drug trafficking got all the cartels together and said, let's quit the infighting. We'll give each of you corridors, whether it's Juarez, Nuevo Laredo, uh, Matamoros, and you stay in each other's territory. But that, that didn't work either. And they always were at each other's throat. One group was always sending cocaine or drugs through another group's territory, and they'd find out about it. So there was just constant conflict among these uh, cartels. Well, you know, Skip, it's interesting. And Jim, another kind of profiling question for you about this. I find uh, LaBarbie's actions in sending this video into the United States to be really interesting because it could have multiple purposes or one or the other purpose in that he could be trying to sort of brag, look, you can't get me. I took these guys out before, you know, they could get me. Or he could be trying to just show how terrifying in his mind he is because he himself killed these guys himself. I mean, so he's sort of creating his own image. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it was a bold move. I mean, anytime you document yourself committing a murder, you're you're creating evidence that can eventually be used against you, and not only by law enforcement, but I'm sure by the people who sent them. And these violent people just they escalate. Am I right, Skip? I mean, you know, you start you start being you know semi-violent, then you become violent, then you become extremely violent, and then it's just no holds barred. You're, you're absolutely correct. And LaBarbie's violence and his violent act and his murders became a sticking point later on when LaBarbie actually tried to negotiate his surrender. But there's no way of surrendering with a guy that's responsible for killing hundreds of people. And several, he pulled the trigger himself that he was involved in himself. So there's no way of negotiating with a guy like that. Although he offered up some really big targets and a lot of drugs in order for him to come back to the United States with $5 million and work out a sentence that he would serve a lot less than if we called him ourselves. Well, let's talk about how you caught him. I'm interested in how you got to the point where you're negotiating with LaBarbie. How does it get from LaBarbie's killing a team of assassins to LaBarbie is trying to get a favorable sentence? Y'all, one of the things I love about true crime is that the further you dig into a story, the more layers you uncover. And that's what I love about the puzzle game Best Fiends. The more I play, the more fun it gets. I've even hooked my friends and family on Best Fiends. I have to admit, I come from a competitive family, and I'm very competitive. And now that I'm a former prosecutor instead of a current prosecutor, it's one of the best outlets I have for competition. Y'all, Best Fiends treats this game like a service for their players. They update the game monthly with new levels and events, and it never gets old. I always find myself playing in random places like when I'm in line or 
During these weird times, I find myself playing whenever I need a break from work or I go outside to take a walk. I even find myself playing Best Fiends when I'm waiting for coffee. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. You can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. LaBarbie had his lawyer reach out to us. So LaBarbie, I need to back up a little bit. So what, what happened, LaBarbie actually, in an effort of good faith, agreed to turn in Arturo Beltran Leyva. At that point, Arturo Beltran Leyva was boss of bosses. He was El Chapo before El Chapo became El Chapo. He was at war with El Chapo at that point. The reason they went to war was Labarbi wasn't happy just being head of Los Negros. He wanted to take over the cartel, Beltran Leyva cartel. The Beltran Leyva cartel at that point, which was about 2008, I believe it was, is when they split from El Chapo. What happened was one of the Beltran Leyva brothers was arrested. The rest of the cartel, Beltran Leyva, figured out that El Chapo was the one that turned in their brother. They called him the fire ant. He was one of the mm-hmm. Beltran Leyva brothers. They figured that El Chapo had given the information to have their brother arrested, which led to the split of the Sinaloa cartel and El Chapo becoming his own own cartel leader in his own right and Beltran Leyva brothers going their separate ways. Proving once again, there really is no honor among thieves. I mean, they will turn in their mother to get the advantage, especially if it means leading their own cartel, I guess. Well, well certainly. And, and that was that was shown shortly thereafter when uh, El Chapo's son was leaving a, a shopping mall and he was gunned down, believed to be done by the Beltran Levas in retaliation for the arrest of their brother. And, and do you think that LaBarbie was trying to turn him in because he wanted to take over rather than LaBarbie like having a epiphany and wanting to do something good. He was actually just trying to take out his competition. That's absolutely correct. That's absolutely what he was doing. It, you know, it, it, DEA is a funny thing. Um, even though it's one entity, the DEA, the information doesn't necessarily get shared. Mm. Even though I was a case agent at that time, I had written a provisional arrest warrant for LaBarbie, and I had the initial case on him. Mexico, Houston, everybody was had working on him and the Beltran labels, and everyone kept the information close. It wasn't later on until I received information that LaBarbie was behind turning in the Beltran Leyva brothers, and ultimately, they believed that he possibly behind the death of Arturo Beltran Leyva, the godfather, the boss of bosses, when he got killed in a gunfight with Mexican forces. So LaBarbie was ambitious. He wanted to head his own cartel. After Arturo Beltran Leyva was murdered by the police, or not murdered, killed by the police when they tried to capture him, a war broke out to take over the Arturo Beltran Leyva cartel. And Hector Beltran Leyva was on one side and LaBarbie was on the other. And their infighting had a lot to do with the actual destruction of the cartel itself. But then you also had the FBI and DEA making numerous arrests of their lieutenants and the brothers themselves were arrested by the Mexican police based on warrants out of the United States. So the 
cartels started kind of eroding away. And at that point, Labarbi went to Mexico, I mean, Acapulco, Mexico, where he started what he always wanted to do, his own cartel. And it was called the Acapulco Cartel. The Acapulco area is... I'm sorry, that just doesn't sound that threatening. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. In Acapulco, it always been stronghold of the Sinaloa cartel, and Barbie had multiple houses there, apartments where he could hide. He didn't stay any place for more than a night. But his betrayal of Arturo Beltran Leva by telling, giving us information on where he was going to be, ultimately led to his uh, his demise. Also, Labarbi's in Acapulco. Mm-hmm. He's turned in. All, or tried to turn in all sorts of people. Uh, someone got killed because of it, because the police were trying to capture him because they knew where he was. Mm-hmm. So what's LaBarbie doing that makes him want to negotiate a surrender? He knows He's he living did. the high life in Acapulco, right? The, the political time is changing. Things are changing. He knows his days are numbered. He wants to get back to the United States. He wants to get out while he still can. Remember, there's still people looking to kill him at this time. His, his cartel has, has dwindled. Even though he has this new cartel, it's nothing like the powerful cartels that he was associated with or helped lead when he was was younger. Things are coming to an end. He wants to get out while the getting's good. He's asked to bring five to seven million dollars back. He's already given up Arturo Beltran Leva. He's already told DEA where a shipment of three thousand kilos of coke coming from Colombia are. And but the problem is again the the government. Department of Justice, it's hard to justify negotiating with a stone-cold psychopath murderer like LaBarbie. Yes, I can imagine my brethren weren't too excited about giving him any considerations because they wanted to prosecute him for the full extent of what he did and probably seek the death penalty. Sure. Well, they should probably have just gone to Florida and talked to a particular prosecutor there. <laughs> yeah. The one who dealt with Epstein. <laughs> Somehow I knew that was where you were going. Poor Skip. Don't drag poor Skip into that. Oh, please. You Good laugh. Give me a break. Give but me you're a break. right. It's an excellent point, Jim. So DOJ prosecutors are not really that excited about negotiating with LaBarbie, Skip. So what happens? Well, what happens is now we've gotten to the point where El Chapo's been arrested. El Chapo escapes, leaving egg on the face of the Mexican authorities. Shortly after that, the the Mexican authorities rounded up a lot of people, a lot of drug traffickers. They got information on LaBarbie, where he was. There was, I think, a $3 million reward on the arrest of LaBarbie at the time. And someone eventually gave him up. He was caught in one of his houses in Mexico, went down without a fight. The the big killer, LaBarbie, goes down without a single uh, shot being fired. He's arrested. He's sent to, uh, to prison. And at that time, Atlanta's continuing to build a case where it was alleged that he supplied the Black Mafia family up there, which was a huge uh, drug trafficking organization that owned bars and nightclubs, had multi-millions, millions of dollars. They had nightclubs where they had exotic animals inside their tigers and all, all different types of uh, different, different species of animals. They were a huge group organization. And I believe that the way that they got introduced to La Barbie was through the guy Craig Petty's in Memphis that I mentioned earlier. He his he had a relative that was a a rapper, and he lived in Atlanta. And Petty's liked to race cars, and he met another guy over there. I believe the guy's name was Torrance Hill, and Torrance Hill had associates with the Black Mafia family. Petty's and Hill raced cars together. 
through that connection, they started, hey, we'll bring you some Coke. We got plenty of it. We've got this connection down there, which was LaBarbie. So at the at the time that LaBarbie was arrested, there was warrants for him in Memphis, Mississippi, New Orleans, Texas, and Atlanta, just to name a few of the places that he was wanted at. Relatively speaking, the 60, 70 kilos I got and the 1,500 kilos of conspiracy that I had against him were small numbers compared to what they had gotten in Atlanta mm. um, and, and also Memphis. So when we actually, when, when LaBarbie was actually arrested, although I was the only one at the time that had done the provisional arrest warrant and extradition affidavit, it was decided that the best place to prosecute him would probably be Atlanta because they had the most current case and the freshest evidence. And so when he was extradited to the United States, he was sent to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And when he was extradited, it was years after he was arrested. He stayed in a, a Mexican prison for quite a, quite a while. And eventually, again, like I said, after El Chapo escaped, they sent LaBarbie and several other traffickers up to the United States, the Mexican government did as show good faith. Uh, well, while we've been talking, Skip, I have looked up the case because it is my own hometown case. Jim, you and I have a connection to this case. Oh, yeah? What's you that? and I together do. But first, let me say, federal prosecutors, uh, Skip, called Valdez a drug trafficker of the highest magnitude. And it's a conservative estimate that he was responsible for distributing at least 12,000 kilos of cocaine into the U.S. with large quantities moving in through Atlanta. And the sentence they were asking for when he was sentenced in 2018 was 55 years in prison and an order of forfeiture of $192 million. Apparently, he was uh, he spent about eight years in Mexico, Skip. Does that sound right to you before he was extradited back? Yes. And, you know, I, at one point I got a call to go to Mexico that I was probably going to go down there for a, uh, a hearing, which I really didn't want to do. You know, at that time, it still was very unstable down there. But, uh, yeah, I was supposed to go down there for a hearing on him. But it, it, fortunately for me, it, it never happened. Wow. And prosecutors apparently had seen the same uh, video that you talked about, Skip, because they were talking about that video taken of the execution of uh, men from a rival drug gang who'd been dispatched to assassinate him. And that you're right, he arranged for copies of those to be sent uh, to U.S. media and even to U.S. law enforcement. I guess he was pretty much bragging about it. They talk about having arrested him with AK-47s, M-16s, grenade launchers, night vision equi equipment, 50 caliber rifle, and the smuggling of tons of cocaine into the United States. Yes. You know, if, if you want to read a pretty good article, Rolling Stone did a article on him. It's I mean, pages and pages. It's a, it's a quick, easy read, but it, it's their magazine. And it gives the history of LaBarbie. A lot of it's very accurate. Do you know what the connection you and I have to LaBarbie? Hmm. Um, I have no idea at this point. The sentencing judge is federal district court judge Bill Duffy. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. Francie and I both know Bill Duffy. Bill Duffy actually hired Francie into the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I work with Bill in the Whitewater investigation for a number of years. That's right. So, Skip, we're like six degrees of LaBarbie, <laughs> although maybe not even six. We're like two degrees 
of Labarbi away from uh, you in this case. Who knew? Yes. Wow. Fascinating. So, so I want to ask you how you feel about this case. It is. It has to be weird to have something that went on. I mean, he was just sentenced in 2018 to have something that went on that started from what you did in the early 2000s in a very little drug case to go for that long, that many years and have that enormous impact. Yes. I mean, it was certainly a fascinating case and it was a education into the world of cartels. A lot of the information I received on them was just intelligence information. But between DEA and FBI, they had agents all over Mexico that were working that would work up these intelligence briefings. And you could see which cartel controlled which area, which cartel was killing the most people, which who were the enforcement arms. It was a real education and in, in the cartels and their, their way of life and the way of violence uh, that they, they lead. I, again, my case kind of ended. It was it was done in New Orleans. There was huge cases that were done. In, in several other states, in bigger cases than mine, most definitely. And again, the Craig Pettis received, I think, nine life sentences. Those were for murders of people that he suspected were snitches. Going back to Pettis and Dave, they were both arrested in Acapulco, leaving their house after the U.S. Marshals got tips on their whereabouts. They absconded from the United States, fled to Mexico, and were arrested down there eventually and came back here and were held, held trials on them in the United States, where, again, Pettis got uh, nine life sentences. And I believe uh, Dave Warner, the guy from Mississippi, is is out now. But after a lot of this was just coordination stuff with them, with the different offices, uh, sharing intelligence, showing pictures, trying to identify people we had that we saw on surveillance or phone numbers and nicknames and stuff like that. But it was a fascinating case from the aspect of this was a real high-level cartel guy that we had actually these quite a bit of drugs from, heard on the phone. We'd actually make phone calls back and forth too. And it's about the closest to Mexico that I ever got. Skip, thank you for telling us this expansive story. And it's very exciting. And you had no idea when you started what you were getting yourself into. Now that it's over and La Barbie has been sentenced and you're sitting back and actually in retirement now, what do you consider this case, a best case or a worst case? I guess I consider it the uh, the best case. From taking a little small buy in the French Quarter of New Orleans to Acapulco, Mexico, and the involvement it had with all the cartels, I consider we worked it up fairly well. We got quite a few arrests in it, got a, quite a few seizures in it. We passed along information to other DEA and FBI offices that they used to assist them in their case. and. It helped not only arrest the Barbie, but it also helped with other high-level leaders and associates and cartels giving information on on them, which led to their future arrest also. Well, that's awesome. And we totally agree that you did an amazing job and you and uh, your team and the DEA in general and the partners that you worked with, including the FBI and, and the U.S. Attorney's Office. I'm sure everybody was extremely happy that you did what you did and had the guts to move it forward and to take those risks early on that eventually opened up the doors. Because as you know, some people are just government employees and they'll do the bare minimum to get by. Uh, you obviously saw an opportunity. You grabbed it by the horns and you made something amazing out of 
what would have been a very small 15 kilo bust. Thank you. I think we did too. And there's a lot of help from other agents from the DEA and uh, other agencies too. You know, it wasn't a one-man operation. We had a lot of help from a lot of different people. I get it. And that's how these cases work, right, Jim? I mean, we all were partners and all. That was one of the most exciting things about working cases was getting the opportunity to work those kinds of cases and meet so many people from different agencies dedicated like you, Skip. So thank you. And thank you so much for sharing the story with us and our listeners of Best Case, Worst Case. And for now, we're going to be signing off, but we hope to hear another story from you again in the future. You bet. I've got one for you. All right, great. Take care and thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, L.A., Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's D, the number two, L, dot org.